Amen. Thank you, Bill. So good to have you back. Kids, we're going to go ahead and dismiss. Yeah, and head downstairs with Sister Roberta and Corey's there for nursery. How down, have fun. Praise Jesus. If we hear you, that's okay. The rest of us, we're going to be in a new series this this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. I was really struggling with where to go. Um, the Lord has put on my well. Every, so I, when I do my devotional reading, I start reading a book. And I'm like, "This is the one I want to do next," <laughs> and then I go to the next one. Right? Just like my p- favorite Bible verse. It really depends on the week I'm and what I'm in. It's like my favorite Bible verse always changes. Uh, but I was trying to figure out or just discern what the Lord would have us do next. And, you know, and uh, it came down to this. A few weeks ago, when we were in the book of Ecclesiastes, I was on another train of thought, and I was using a, a Ephesians as a, as a proof text or something, and I told everybody, turn to the book of Ephesiastes, <laughs> which is not a book of the Bible. And thankfully, the Lord uh, gave me mercy and did not strike me dead immediately. So I corrected myself, and then I proceeded to say it again. And so my final determination factor of where we're going to go next is I chose Mark because it's only one syllable. <laughs> and if I mess up Mark, then we're, I'm seriously in trouble, right? So that, no, I, the, the gospel of Mark is, is a, a great gospel, I think, to launch into after just completing a, a, a tough series through Ecclesiastes, this, that cynical writing of, of how bleak life can be, how enigmas of life can can throw us for a loop and how without pressing in and understanding that God's in the ultimate control and that he's, his purposes are being carried out, how quickly if we don't define our lives and the purposes and the trials and, and, and life, how quickly uh, we can become cynical ourselves and see that they're determined there's no meaning. But as we press on, as we've seen, as uh, Solomon concluded last week, it's through fearing God and keeping his commandments in the New Testament context. That's understanding who God is and coming to God in relationship through the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and then allowing him to empower our lives to live a life that's for his glory and to seek his will. Not our will, but his will be done. And the gospel marks a great opportunity for us to to jump into again more application of what that means right i don't want to be a preacher that just stands up here and tells you you need to walk in god's will i I want to be able to to show you and demonstrate to you first in my own life modeling it for me and my for my my family and, and for you what it means to follow after god and to seek his will application i want us to be uh, doers of the word and not just hearers only. And the gospel marks a great place for us to go next to, to try to model that. So before we, before we get into the first, I say here one through eight, but it's really the first six verses that we're going to be covering today. I want to give you a little bit of introduction and background to the gospel according to Mark. The author as unanimously by all the, the church fathers and historians was written by uh, a gentleman by, by the name of John Mark, right? Mark is, was not an apostle. He was uh, referenced in um, Acts many times. He, 
He was on a missionary journey with Paul, um, but he ultimately became really close companions with Peter and the Apostle Peter. And so the book of Mark is him recording Peter's uh, account of the Lord Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry. So Mark's taking what Peter told him and recording it for us. It's, um, Peter refers to Mark in Acts, uh, 1 Peter 5.13 as his son. So they were very close. And um, again, like I said, the church fathers unanimously agreed that it was, it was, it was uh, Mark that wrote this gospel. And he had the apostolic authority because it was what Peter had told him. Uh, just a few quotes from church history. A Bishop uh, Papias in 140 A.D., wrote uh, that the Apostle John, the Apostle John told him, um, he said this, Mark, having been the interpreter, Peter wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. And so again, Mark's gospel being given apostolic authority that's recorded in the, in the, in the annals of, the, of church history. Um, Justin Martyr in 150, 150 A.D. referred to the gospel of Mark as the memoirs of Peter. So again, Mark writing down faithfully what Peter had told him, making sure, as the, the Papias quote said, that John said that Mark was in, made sure that he did not take away or add to what Peter had told him. And so we can confidently uh, take the book of Mark as what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. But as we begin to examine the gospel of Mark, we'll see that Mark wasn't necessarily concerned with uh, doing what... Or, or demonstrating or writing in a chronological order what Jesus did. So if you see Mark, chronologically, it's not, it's not one after another. Mark was more concerned about the, the deeds and the actions of Jesus Christ. And again, he was going off of what Peter told him. So we have other Gospels that paint a fuller picture of the chronology, um, but Mark wasn't concerned about that. He was more worried about demonstrating to his readers and ultimately through the power of the Spirit, demonstrating to us what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, and why Jesus went to the cross. It's what he was most worried about. Um, There are works that are done called synoptic gospels. In fact, Laura Lee, David's wife, she she has written a book that's a synoptic gospel. So she's aligned all the different uh, gospels in, in chronological order. So you can uh, go page by page and see how each gospel chronologically goes through the life of Jesus. And she has those for sale. I think they're on sale. They're on Amazon for like 40 bucks. But if you talk to her or talk to David, right, I think uh, it's a, it's like half off. So, but it's, I have it. It's a, it's just a great reference to be able to see the chronology and, and where the gospels line up with one another and what, what's being omitted from some. What's what's not being or what's being added um, by a fuller underst- or a fuller um, presentation from the other gospel writers? Mark wrote this got his gospel somewhere between the late fifties to early seventies, depending on which commentator I picked up. Uh, depended on when they tried to nail it down. Sometime in between then, it's um, uh, unanimously agreed that he wrote that from. He wrote his gospel while in Rome. And so we see here that Mark's gospel was written not to people, to, to Gentiles, to not to the people that knew the Jewish 
traditions and the Jewish uh, uh, upbringing. They didn't have that necessarily. They were Gentiles. They were in Rome, so the predominantly the people of the church in Rome were Gentiles, and so they didn't necessarily have a firm grasp or understanding of Jewish traditions or Jewish history. And so Mark's audience was not was to them. And so he, he like withheld the genealogies that Matthew and Luke did because he knew that, well, I mean, I don't know, but he, he withheld them because, you know, that wasn't important to a Gentile as it was to a Jew. He didn't go excessively into the teachings of like Sermon on the Mount and stuff that from the Jewish tradition would, would or from the Jewish, if you grew up in the Jewish tradition, you would understand where, where he was going from. He, he mentions these things, but he doesn't go into great detail like the other gospels do. And while he's writing, he, he is writing at a time, especially in Rome, where the Christians are undergoing severe persecution. From the 50s and early 70s A.D., the, the Christians were severely persecuted. To give you an example, the, the Emperor Nero in 64 A.D. wanted a, wanted a new palace in, in Rome, and so he he instigated a fire which ended up catching half of the fire, half of the city on devastating half of the city and you know of course it was just lots of death and carnage and and Nero turns around and blames the Christians for setting the fire when it was actually him and that spawned this time of immense persecution if you read about it it's just baffling to to hear and read what Christians went through through because of their faith in Jesus Christ alone, being fed to, to the animals and to be used as, as uh, lanterns in the, in, the, in the emperor's courtyard and garden. Um, just horrific things. And so this was the time, um, if it was written before Nero did that, it was still, the Christians were still seen as abhorrent and a people not to be trusted. They were still considered outcasts and persecuted. Uh, Tatticus, he a, was a Roman historian, and he, he quoted, uh, wrote in one of his books, his uh, hist- historical annuals, uh, Christians were already viewed as a class of men loathed for their vices whom, they, whom the crowd styled as Christians. And so they were loathed, they were persecuted. And this is the context in which Mark writes down his, the gospel according to him, according to what Peter had given him. It's given to an audience that is no doubt suffering persecution. And to an audience that, like you and I who are human, who begin to wonder and doubt, <laughs> right? If it's all worth it. To have your lives turned upside down, to be threatened with jail or persecution because of your faith in Christ. And that's the context in which John or Mark, John Mark, he he's referred to as John Mark. Uh, it's it was often common to have a, a Hebrew name, so his Hebrew name was John, and then his Roman name was Mark, like Paul, the Apostle Paul. Right, his Hebrew name was Saul, and then he had a Roman name named name Paul. So often, uh, it was common to have two surnames back in the day. Um, a Hebrew name and a, and a Roman name. And so John Mark, or, or Mark, he's referred to both in the Bible. Um, that's who we're talking about, and that is the author of this 
a wonderful gospel that's been passed down to us through the preservation and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So again, why, why go to the gospel? Why, why delve into it verse by verse? And it ties back to what we've been talking about. If we're really going to seek God and follow after him and to pursue his will in our lives and not our own, how does that happen? How can we do that if it's, we're not to rely on our own strength? If, if it's the transformation of the Spirit, what, what are we to do? And, and Scripture declares again and again that in order to be transformed into the image of Jesus, we need to walk with him and keep our focus on him and behold him. Behold our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he writes this, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in the mirror at the glory of the Lord, looking at Jesus and his glory. And as we, he says, as we look in a spiritual sense upon the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. God transforms us from the inside out as we focus on him, as we behold the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the Spirit of God doing a work of transformation within us. And it's step by step. I wish it was just immediate, right? We receive Jesus and we perfect, become perfect and, and, uh, and lack nothing and, and have complete and perfect faith and, and demonstrate our love as Jesus did completely and perfectly to, to God and to one another. But it's not the case. It's from glory to glory. It is from step by step. And the command for us is to behold Jesus. Keep our eyes on Him. So let us behold Jesus. We can't see Him with our physical eyes. The Father says, or the, Bible, the Scriptures declare that he, He's at the right hand of the Father, bodily resurrected, but right hand of the Father forever making intercession for the saints. But we can behold Jesus in God's preserved Word. We can behold Jesus in the Gospels. And through the power of the Spirit, we can be transformed as we see Jesus and His workings and, and grow to a greater and deeper understanding of what He's done. And that in, as we behold Him, the Scriptures declare we will be transformed into that same image. So let us behold Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And we see here in verse 1, Mark declaring the beginning of the gospel, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we have some very foundational terms. Foundational terms in this very first verse. There's so much theology. The beginning of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the, uh, the Greek word is evangelion. It's where we get the word evangelical, right? It's the, the good news. It ties back to the time of an emperor sacking another army and he would send, um, Tara was in England hanging out with a friend and uh, they were hanging out in the middle of the town and the town crier came up to the middle of the town and where he, he stands and stood above the crowd and he, he cried out that one of the princes had been born, right? That there was good news in the city because the prince had been born from Harry or one of those guys. Travis will correct me later because he's the history teacher. But it was the town crier. And it's kind of the same idea here that uh, when an emperor were, was to sack an army, they would send the good news that the king has won. The king has won to all the, 
all his territory and all his region. And this idea of the good news is that it is good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, has won. He has gained victory over sin and death for those who believe and trust in this gospel message. So the gospel means good news. The, the, Noah, the Noah Dictionary, the Webster Dictionary, I guess. Um, I have an 1828 version in my, in my office there. And I love it because I, I just the, the way he defined things, Noah Webster was a Christian, and so many of the definitions refer to the Bible and stuff. But it is amazing also to see how the English uh, language just mutates over time, how meanings of words change. But he said this about the gospel. He said the gospel is the revelation of the grace. God's unmerited favor is what grace means of God to a fallen man through a mediator. And who's this mediator? Including the character, actions, and the doctrine of Christ. Christ is our mediator. The whole scheme of salvation, God has made a way of salvation, and that is the good news. And it's been revealed by Christ and His apostles. We are possessors of God's redemption story of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so it's the gospel, the good news. And then Mark goes on to say it is the gospel of who Jesus Christ, again, packed with theology. Jesus is the the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name uh, uh, Joshua or Yeshua. Which, which means, in Hebrew, it means the Lord is salvation. And interesting that uh, when he says the Lord, it's, it's, if you look in your Bible, more than likely you'll see that the Lord is all capitalized in the Old Testament when it refers to him. Because the, the capital L-O-R-D is not the typical Lord that any, anybody with authority could be. But the capital L, all capitals, Lord, is referring back to to God's specific name. We sung this morning in the closing of the great I am. Moses went to God and said, who should I tell the people has sent me? And he says, tell them I am that I am. Literally, it's translated, I be, I be. God has always eternally existed. He is transcendent above our creation. He's the one that spoke the galaxies and numerous stars into existence. And the the fact that you're here uniquely and designed is because of what God has done. But he stands above it. He is above all things. He is transcendent. He has always existed as the great three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three persons yet, one God. And as hard as it is to wrap our minds around, that is who God has revealed himself to be. And that is the God who purposed to save us from our sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus and John said, if you want to know the Father, know me. So we behold Jesus. And we see God displayed, fully displayed. He's the express image of the Godhead. Paul will go on to write. We see who God is through his word and his revealed word of who he's revealed himself to be. And this I am, the L-O-R-D is uh, called, uh, when you, the, the, the Jewish uh, patriarchs wrote the, the, the word Lord down, that I am passage, it was 
written down in, in vowels only. Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew language, of course. Y-H-W-H. And they, uh, there's been a great debate about how to even pronounce that because the, the, the Jews were so worried about taking the, names, the, the Lord, name of the Lord in vain right, that they rarely spoke it or it did speak it at all. And so you might have heard the, heard the name Jehovah and that, that's often the transliteration of, of YHWH. Uh, modern uh, scholars have said that it's more likely Yahweh is how to pronounce that. But Jehovah and Yahweh are synonymous one with one another. It's referring to this, this um, expression found in the Old Testament of Yahweh or YHWH, the Lord, capital, all capitals. And so Jesus means in Hebrew, he is the Lord of salvation. The Lord is salvation. That was the name, right, that Mary was to give him. And he go, we go on and say the gospel is not only the gospel of Jesus, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? Christ is a, is a, uh, is a title. Again, referring back to the Hebrew word of anointed one. He was the promised anointed one, the promised Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament that would come to save and deliver his people. The Jews of the day are looking or looked back in this day at the time of Jesus, and, and some are still looking for this promised one, this Messiah that will deliver God's people. And we see that this Messiah that is prophesied in the Old Testament is, is revealed and completely understood in Jesus Christ. He is God's anointed one. He is the Messiah. Daniel 9, back in the Old Testament, verse 26, specifically or explicitly says, or talks about or prophesies about the anointed one having to be cut off. Indicating that the Messiah would one day have to go and die. And so we see Jesus being the fulfillment of this great rich tradition of these ancient books of antiquity that has been preserved for us that makes one complete and entire story. And it's a story in which we can find salvation. Because salvation is of the Lord. It is found in Yeshua, the Christ, the Anointed One. And we go on as we see what Mark has written down. He's, he's not only, it's the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but he's also, the, he says, the Son of God. Mark refers to, to Jesus as the Son of God many times because Mark's pointing to this Gentile audience of of the uniqueness of Jesus and who Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just someone that's charismatic and and can get a crowd to follow him. He's unique. He's the the Greek word monogenes, the the only begotten is sometimes how the scriptures uh, define it, but it's it's a unique, uh, the unique one. Jesus is the only one that came down from heaven as the God of very gods, the the Son of God who's always existed co-eternally with the Father and the Spirit. He's the one that volunteered to, to set his, his holiness, or not his holiness, but his, the, all this, whatever it means to be a God and, and, and the elaborateness of heaven. He set those things aside to come to, into his creation to become a man so that he could go to the cross to die 
for us to pay the penalty. He is the only one that is from heaven. The scriptures declare that we are all formed in our mother's womb, but it is Jesus who came from heaven. It is Jesus who was miraculously um, put into Mary's womb through the power of the Holy Spirit as the uh, other gospels declare. He is the unique one. He is the means in which salvation can be had for all who will believe and trust in this good news, the message of Jesus. God went through extraordinary efforts to demonstrate that his salvation, his way of salvation is through Christ. And that's why Jesus in his earthly ministry, as we went through John, we saw him say, I am the only way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. It is through him. Jesus is not someone to be added to an extra thing that we're trying to do to to appease to God. It is through Christ and his gospel alone that we can have this salvation. And this salvation of the unique Son of God, this gospel is grounded in the Old Testament. Again, I'm so glad that we're not just picking up and trying to create some fanciful doctrine that uh, tickles our ears. This gospel message, the good news found in the New Testament, is entirely based on the foundation of the Old Testament. They're interwoven. We can't divorce, ever divorce the Old Testament from the New because it's foundational to understanding what God, Jesus has done in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And Mark says, tells these Gentile believers that this gospel, that this faith that they placed in Christ is, is based on not just a, a new teaching, but sound teaching from of old verse 2 as it is written in isaiah the prophet see i am sending my messenger ahead of you he will prepare your way it's interesting he says it is written in isaiah the prophet um, and we'll see isaiah being quoted in verse 3 but this verse in 2 is actually from malachi chapter 3 verse 1 it's an Old Testament prophet prophesying of someone, this person that would come before the arrival of this Messiah that was promised, that someone would come and prepare the way for the Messiah to arrive. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He's giving these quotes to these Gentile believers because he's marking the beginning of the gospel, a beginning by the arrival of John the Baptist, this person that was prophesied that would prepare the way of the Lord. And then he closes, and more than likely that's why he said Isaiah says this, because he ends with Isaiah. Verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah says this, and he quotes him here in verse 3, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. The Old Testament prophesied that someone would come and and make the way for for this Messiah to arrive. It is John the Baptist that we see doing this. In all the Gospels, we see him beginning this, this, this new ministry, and he's the one preparing the way. And so how does John prepare the way? Does he come into Jerusalem and say, we need to build a castle or we need to form an army because the Messiah is coming? Oh, Mark records what Peter told him, how John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah. And it's through John's baptism of repentance. 
In verses 4 through 6, we see this. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so again, we have some words to define here. We've had 2,000 years of church history, and so all of us have different definitions of all these words that we've just read. Baptism, repentance, forgiveness of sins, and how we go about that. So we need to, to understand what these words mean biblically. We've talked about, I mean, we're Baptists, right? We, we understand that God, Jesus has commanded us to, to baptize people who are disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the first step of obedience. But we know that we've taught and we've t- talked about the fact that baptism isn't the means in which God saves us. It is by grace, God's grace, unmerited favor through placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Coming to a personal encounter with Jesus and understanding who you are in the eyes of a holy God and how your sin separates you from him. And by placing your faith in him, that is through salvation. Baptism is only a symbol of what has happened on the inside that we now identify with Jesus Christ and the new life he has promised with us or in us through his death, burial, and resurrection. We step into the waters of baptism not to be saved, but to identify and proclaim to the world. Sierra did it just a couple months ago, right? To be buried in the waters, to be buried in Christ's death, and to be risen again is to be identified in his risen, victorious uh, defeat over sin, to newness of life. It's a symbol. And that's what's happening here. John's not giving up baptism that gives people uh, forgiveness of sins. It is uh, him calling out and preparing the way of the Lord by saying the first thing and the thing, the thing we need to take away from this is, look, we, we, in order for us to partake of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we first have to understand the bad news and how our sin is truly something that keeps us separated from a holy God. John makes the way for the Messiah by proclaiming, repent. Your sin is a problem. To understand what Jesus has done, we can't just add Jesus. Oh yeah, that sounds good. Oh, he died for me. Great. No, there has to be a conviction of it and an understanding that you, without Jesus, will be forever and eternally separated from your God. And you can't keep going on living your life saying, well, I just think, I think God's going to outweigh my good or weigh my good and it'll outweigh my bad so he'll wink at me and let me in. That is heartbreaking that the majority of society thinks that. Because God has made a way. He has demonstrated his love, but it's by sending his son to die and take the penalty for your sin upon himself so that you might be, look, be made righteous in, in Christ Jesus. But in order for you to truly encounter Jesus in that saving way, you must understand how your sin will forever keep you separated from God. That there's no religious work that you can do long enough, good enough, better than anybody else to be able to earn your merit in the eyes of a holy God. And this is what John is, how he's preparing the way to call out to people that their sins need to be forgiven, that if the Messiah, this one that is anointed by God, is to come to receive or to give salvation like they've been looking for, what they must do, they must understand that their sin has separated them from their, their God. And look what 
that's just an awesome moving movement of God that's recorded for us here. Mark says in verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him and in the Jordan River confessing their sins. All of Jerusalem, all the countryside were, were coming to this guy. And look in verse 6, it's not like this guy, had, they were coming to him because he was charismatic and had the best suit and you know white pearly teeth that sparkled in the sunshine. right? John was a one who in verse 6 wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He was separated from society. He, he was not uh, um, involved in high society. He was the one that God had made to prepare the way of the Lord. And he came baptizing. And again, it's a symbolic representation of an inward attitude. People understanding their sin. And if this Messiah, if God's anointed was to come, that they, they had a sin problem. And, and, and John's forerunning, preparing the, the way of the Messiah is this baptism that symbolizes this inward attitude and a heartfelt conviction about God in preparation for His coming. And it's a repentance. That's another loaded word. That means a lot of different definitions to people. So when I was growing up, um, I was in a religious system. I went to a religious leader to, to try to earn my favor back with God because I knew I'd sinned yet again. And he gave me a book that talked about repentance. And he told me, the book told me, and I still have the book, so I'm not just employing hyperbole here. The book says that if, if you want to be truly repentant to God, you, you need to, to pray and ask for forgiveness and then not do that particular sin anymore. And then if, that's, if you do that long enough, then the religious leader will say, okay, I've now declared you to be repentant. The book would go on to say, however, if you 10 years later, you commit that same sin, not only are you guilty for that sin that you did 10 years later, but the, sin, the guilt that you had for the, for the sin that you committed 10 years earlier will be also poured upon you. Talk about hopelessness. Is that repentance of the Bible? I say not. Repentance in the Bible is not this means of us trying to earn God's favor with our good, righteous attitudes and our sorrow and really demonstrating our sorrow to people around us. Repentance that is found in the Scripture is this, uh, means uh, the word is metanoia. And at its basis, it means change of mind. But as we see this idea of, of change of mind in Scripture, we see that it's a call to change in direction as well, to change one's mind in the New Testament context is to, to be being a Jew and keeping the laws as best you can and, and doing everything they've asked you to do and then hearing the good news that Jesus has come to deliver you from the, the bondage of the law and the bondage of sin as a Hebrew. That believing and placing your faith and trust in Him, that he's, he's paid that price, He's lived the law for you. All you need to do is trust in Christ. That would be a radical change of mind to a Jewish person. At the time. And if someone were to genuinely receive and believe that, that change of mind would result in a change in direction. They would no longer try to please God by keeping the law and earning their own self-righteousness, right? The scriptures call us 
to change in direction and follow Christ. A change in mind that leads to a change in direction. That is what God calls us to. Uh, Luke records this same uh, introduction of John the Baptist, and he, he calls out to the crowd in Luke chapter 3, verse 7, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, right? God's wrath is coming. He must punish sin. And so he calls out to them, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Verse 8, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. It's one thing to say you're sorry. Show me in your action and your direction in your life. Fruit that's consistent with that. I used to have a few verses to talk about repentance and what it looks like. It's not only a change of mind. right? We don't just assent to the gospel. We, we change our direction. We abandon hope in our own righteousness. We abandon hope in our religious uh, aspirations and we trust in Christ and him alone, and we put, seek our eyes on him. And we, as he walked through in his earthly ministry, he'd call people to himself and he'd say, Follow me, follow me. And he tells us, Follow me. It's a change in direction, following after Jesus. Second Corinthians says this Paul writes, The difference between a, a godly grief and a worldly grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Because we understand our sin in the eyes of a holy God and we know we can't do it. We can't do anything to earn His favor. And we're brokenhearted, right? As Christians, we know the sin that dwells within us. As Paul says in Romans 7, we know it grieves the Spirit, but right, it's, it's just an ever-present reality until Christ comes back or we go to be with the Lord, the glorification. But worldly grief produces death because worldly grief is, I'm sorry that I got caught. A godly grief produces repentance, a change in mind that leads to a change in direction. Leaning into the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, allowing Him to transform us instead of trying to establish our own righteousness and our own works. Acts 3, Peter's preaching in Solomon's colonnade on the Temple Mount. It's on the eastern wall. It's a double-columned, uh, roofed section of the of the Temple Mount there, and he's preaching in Acts chapter three, and he says, tells them he gives them the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that they need to believe and trust in Christ, and he says, therefore repent, and see how this repentance is what he's calling them to is not only have a change of mind, but a change of not just an ascent to oh yeah Jesus is good, but a change in direction. Repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out. We see that in the Thessalonian, the Thessalonica church. Paul's saying, your faith is all around. I don't have to tell people about you because your faith and what you're doing for Christ, they're telling me. And he says, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you and that their faith, that the place that they have faith in Christ changed the direction in this church's life and what they were doing. Individually and collectively. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Fruit of repentance is really a change in direction as we cling to this new idea of what Jesus has done. Um, and they wait for, Jesus, or wait for Jesus to return, right? That's what we're doing now. 
And we see God using it as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This brings me great comfort that this, this idea of repentance, so often it gets to, you have to do this. You have to, you have, to have this change of mind. You have to have this, this uh, fruit of true. And it's true, we have to have this. But we see in Scripture that it is God working in us. God is pursuing us. Yes, we have to believe and we have to receive the Lord Jesus as Savior and trust in Him alone. And we have to change, have that change of mind that leads to a change of direction to pursue Him. But it is God who is doing the work. Acts 11.18, Peter's explaining to the other apostles of how he has experiences, um, how God showed him different experiences to, to demonstrate to, to Peter how how salvation is now for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And he says here in verse, or they say, the, after they heard Peter's testimony in verse 18, when they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying then, God has given repentance resulting in life. It is God who has given the repentance resulting in life to the Gentiles. Paul writes to Timothy about being a pastor and he says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, must be gentle with everyone, able to teach and be patient, instructing his opponents, those people that are opposing the gospel. We are to instruct our opponents with gentleness. I wish it said, beat them over the head with the Bible, because that's my natural inclination. But it doesn't work. I tried. Scripture was correct. We are to instruct our opponents with gentleness and grace. And he goes on to say, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. See, it takes the pressure off me to try to do a sales pitch to convince somebody they need Jesus. No, I proclaim the gospel knowing that that's the Spirit of God who will convict them and give them this repentance that they need to be able to turn and trust in Christ alone. Because it is a work, a supernatural work of God. Right? Salvation Everyone, if, in case anybody was wondering if there's miracles anymore, anytime someone gets saved and is raised from death to life in Christ Jesus is a supernatural miracle of God. And we're benefactors. We have the privilege to proclaim it, that God would do a work amongst us. I'm, running, I'm out of time, so I just want to close with this bit of application, right? It's the, it's the Spirit who's doing it, who's, who's, who does this salvation, regenerates us, Paul says in Titus chapter 3. It's this idea of faith and belief, and then this, this idea of, of uh, the person needing a change of mind that leads to them abandoned hope and everything else, this idea of repentance. But ultimately, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus and his earthly ministry, talking about the Holy Spirit, the that he's promising his disciples and ultimately us that when he leaves to be at the right hand of the Father, he's going to send a comforter. In verse 8, he says, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, and we see it's a personal pronoun, the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not a power. It's the third person of our triune God. And he indwells us. That's what Jesus' promise was to us. We are now the temples of God for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. When He comes, He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the 
Holy Spirit's ministry to convict the world of their sin and their need to receive Jesus. Yes, we are to be faithful with the gospel message, but we also need to understand that it is a work of God. All of you that have been around for a while know that I try to say the gospel every time I'm up here. And I promise you it's not because I'm just trying to get good enough to, to slick enough to be able to sell someone into Jesus, but I'm hoping and praying every week that as the gospel is proclaimed that the Spirit would use it in someone's life, that they would be saved, knowing full well it would be the Spirit that does it and not me. I don't draw a lot of attention to, to altar calls and stuff like that because I desire it to be a genuine transaction of God in someone's heart and not an emotional appeal in the crowd of many to get someone's emotions whipped up. Oh, I desire people to be saved. But I desire God to do it. And I definitely don't want it be me being manipulating people to try to get them to think they're saved without coming into a genuine encounter of Jesus. It is the ministry of the Spirit that does this. And then ultimately our hard attitude for our application as Christians, if we've encountered Jesus in this saving way, right? This idea of repentance, change of mind, leading in a change of direction is forever before us. We must have this constant attitude of heart repentance, of uh, all of us know our flesh so easily wants to dethrone Jesus in our hearts and rule and reign, right? And, and pursue those fleshly desires. That's why Paul tells us to put off the old man and put on daily and to put on the armor of God, and so this idea of repentance is, should always be before us that we need to, to have this idea that it is through God that we will be changed. We in and of ourselves won't be able to do it. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, after he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service. If you understand what Jesus has done for you, he goes on to say, this hard attitude, I think, is, of repentance is captured here. Do not be conformed to this age, right? The world has another message. The world has another truth claim. And we must constantly put that off and reject it. The world has this constant message of you'll be happy if. We must put that off. Do not be conformed to this age. Instead, we are to be transformed, right? The transformation, inward transformation through the Spirit. How? By the renewing of your mind. By beholding Jesus pursuing Him in His Word and with one another as a church. That's how we renew our mind. And that's how God the Spirit transforms us. So that, in doing that, you may discern. Your translation might say prove. You may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. Not your, my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. May that be our prayer for ourselves and collectively as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, God, to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus. Oh, what you've done for us, God, is just so grateful that we'll be have all of eternity, however, whatever that means, to be able to worship you and, and uh, just be with you because of what you've done in Jesus. We're so grateful that this world and all that's happening right now is not the end-all, be-all, Lord, and we're so grateful to know that you've, you've made a way of salvation through Jesus. And so, God, we just ask that you would help us, Father, to keep our eyes on Jesus, 
that we would have this heart attitude of repentance of denying the, the world and pursuing you and renewing of, uh, of ourselves through your spirit and the word of God. That we might be transformed from glory to glory step by step for, for your good and for, or for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.